I did a FOIA request to the you know city of Meridian saying that I wanted all the narratives. And I mean, I didn't put a number. I just said, I want all the narratives. But what I got in return was all the missing narratives there at the end that were all Arrington's. And they were not in the case file. I thought he just did nothing. And then when we get these narratives, I mean, he actually, I mean, it's like what you would think how an interview should have been, because we always used to complain about the reports from like the attorney general's office and all, because it'd just be this kind of summary. He had a lot of doubts and, you know, a lot of questions about it being a suicide and that things just didn't look right. I mean, they're pretty convincing. Continuing with our theme of updates, I want to talk about what's probably the biggest update since our season wrapped. That is the release of the Arrington Reports. Narratives written by MPD's Captain Jay Arrington from back when he worked the case in 2017 that up until 2021 had gone unreleased. Ray says it was by luck that she even found out about these. She saw one narrative posted online, realized it was not included in her copy of the case file, submitted a FOIA request for all the narratives, and in doing so, received numerous reports that were missing from the case file, which again, were drafted by Jay Arrington. I said at the end of last episode, I don't know how to weigh the overall significance of these reports, so I'll leave that to you. But let's go ahead and jump into these, because there is a lot to unpack here. Rather than read through all of the roughly 14 pages, I'm going to summarize all 10 of Arrington's narratives and read through some portions of them. I'm also going to read a couple of them out of order, as it will make things a little easier to follow. Let's start with the first one, Narrative 44. This is the longest of them all, so bear with me. It acts as a sort of introduction into how he's handled his investigation. He says that starting with the review of the case file, crime scene photographs, and physical evidence, suspicion first set in for him after review of the 911 call. He says, quote, Dylan Swearingen called 911 and reported a suicide and gave the name of an entirely different apartment complex that was on the other side of Meridian. And even after being called back by the dispatcher, Swearingen gave the same wrong information about the location. This delayed emergency responders from reaching the death scene by several minutes. Arrington goes on to say that while dispatch tried to keep Swearingen on the line to confirm responders' arrival, he insisted on getting off the phone to make what Arrington says were non-essential calls. And to complicate things, Arrington believes that a preconceived notion of suicide, which started with that 911 call and Dylan reporting it as such, caused a chain of confirmation bias. Quote, Instead of following the facts to conclusion, responders attempted to make the facts fit their predetermined conclusion. He then states that the death should be classified as a homicide with an unknown cause of death. Complicating things even more, he says, was the Andriacchio's involvement input, and access to pertinent information in the case, stating that it goes against standard operating procedure. He further notes, the MBI and AG's office 
were called in to do their own investigations. Ultimately, he says, in order to investigate this case with an open mind and an objective opinion, I elected to set all this listed input aside and conduct my own investigation. He adds that a review of the death scene photos made it clear that the body had been moved after death, citing the lividity found on the body. In addition, a review of the gunshot wounds and trajectory of the bullet leads him to believe that Christian was either standing in front of or sitting on the toilet when the incident took place. He notes that in an interview with the coroner, Clayton Cobbler, discussing the autopsy and death scene photos led him to the same conclusion. Arrington then gives this observation. It was obvious that the blood spatter from the original death scene and all around the body had been cleaned, except for the bathtub area, and the pistol was in a location that was not consistent with the location when it fired the fatal shot. Arrington interviewed MPD's Detective Wilburn, previously the lead investigator on this case, and he reached the same conclusion. But in regards to his talk with Wilburn, Arrington adds, quote, the most disturbing thing about the interview is the fact that Wilburn stated he made the weapon safe, but could not be conclusive about the hammer position. Arrington also reviewed the crime scene reconstruction and believed it to be very well done. He ends narrative 44 with this statement. At this time, there is enough evidence to support the charge of evidence tampering. I have drafted affidavits and warrants charging Whitley Goodman and Dylan Swearingen with this crime. This investigation will continue. Narrative 45 is also pretty lengthy. This narrative is centered around a meeting Arrington had with Chief DeBose, retired Jackson, Mississippi detective Max Mays, former prosecutor and now attorney for the Andriacchio, Cynthia Speechens, both of which you heard from in the podcast, and lastly, the Andriacchio family. He reviewed their letter dated December 6, 2016, addressed to Chief DuBose, and in this narrative, he breaks it down paragraph by paragraph. Paragraph one is in regards to Cynthia's involvement in the case and a discrepancy regarding the status of the case, that is, her claim that the case is closed with a status of homicide. But Arrington says, this case is still open and is currently listed as a suicide. Therefore, paragraph one is not accurate. Moving on to paragraph two, which expands on Cynthia's involvement and conclusion that Christian's death was not suicide. He also stresses a lack of evidence provided to support her conclusion. Paragraph three is in relation to a case timeline which Cynthia had prepared. Paragraph four is about the family's frustration over the handling of the case, specifically the lack of prosecution. Cynthia believes the scene was staged. Arrington does not believe the scene was staged. Rather, he believes the scene was altered by the suspects. Cynthia points out that Whitley and Dylan's statements to various authorities are inconsistent. Arrington agrees with her claims regarding their deception. Paragraph five is in regards to forensic pathologist Dr. Jonathan Arden's review of the case and his determination that the manner of death should be homicide. Arrington agrees with the assumption that the body was moved post-mortem and is of the belief that the time of death is inconclusive. But he says this, it would take more than the body being moved in an unconfirmed time of death to support a murder charge. Paragraph six discusses Cynthia's notion that Christian could not have uncocked a gun after shooting himself in the head nor could he have taken the gun that was in his right hand and moved it to the place it was found, between his left thigh and the tub. Arrington concurs. Paragraph seven covers some additional concerns that Cynthia brought forth, 
that being a supposed life insurance policy and Dylan's attempt to withdraw Christian's money, along with his reasoning behind it. Arrington dismisses the idea of the life insurance policy, but agrees that the bank situation was suspicious, though he feels Cynthia is casting some speculation. Paragraph 8 is just a request to meet with the police chief and possibly the district attorney. Paragraph 9 indicates that the Andriacchios will not stop pursuing this until there's resolution. And paragraph 10 is simply the letter closing and a mention that he's requested another meeting with Cynthia to learn more. The next narrative, narrative 46, is Arrington's interview with former detective DeMarcus Wilburn, previously the lead investigator on this case. Wilburn confirmed that he too found the scene to be suspicious as well as altered and said he did not believe the stories given by Whitley and Dillon. After learning about Wilburn's involvement during MBI's investigation, Arrington became concerned, saying, quote, I read a follow-up that Wilburn entered that he provided to Sergeant Weeks with crime scene photographs, and Sergeant Weeks provided him with a death certificate. Wilburn further stated he and Weeks compared investigations and came up with about the same conclusion, suicide. I found this strange due to the fact that in a recorded interview, Wilburn indicates he was suspect of the crime scene and both Goodman and Swearingen. Wilburn indicated he was involved in this investigation at the start, but had not seen the autopsy images or report. Narrative 47 is an interview with the responding EMT, Drew Steele. You should be familiar with this one as we covered it before, but for a quick recap, Steele states the apartment was a complete mess, likening it to a nightclub. On the contrary, he found the bathroom to be very clean and noticed that the blood spatter, or lack thereof, did not match what he'd seen previously in his working of suicide scenes. He believed it had been cleaned. He also added that rigor, which had set in the body, along with a cold body temperature, indicated Christian had been deceased for quite some time, at least longer than what was reported. None of that is news, but here's something that is. A statement he heard Whitley make that day, which Arrington relays here, saying, Whitley Goodman stated that during an argument, Christian Andriacchio had run up the stairs, locked himself in the bathroom, and shot himself. I went on to further ask Steele if he was absolutely certain that Goodman had said exactly that, and he stated it was, and he would testify to it in court if needed. I found this to be significant information in the deception of Whitley Goodman about the death of Andriacchio. Narrative 48 is an interview with Clayton Cobbler, the coroner. Arrington described this in his first narrative, but as a refresher, Cobbler was of a different opinion than that of the EMT. He claimed that rigor had not set in and that the cold body temperature was due to blood loss. Arrington disagrees with this claim, but they do agree based on lividity that the body had been moved. Narrative 49 is an interview with MPD's Sergeant Legoy, who was the first responder to the scene. The main takeaways are that he also noted a low body temperature. However, he claims that rigor had set in. He also adds that blood found in the tub was already hardening and turning black. He did not discover the gun or the bullet strike, but he says that he considers it doubtful as a fresh suicide in the current position and condition. Legoy stated that Whitley said she was in bed, heard the gunshot, went upstairs, found Christian, and then called Dylan. She also stated that Christian had been drinking and doing drugs all weekend and was depressed since losing his job. Legoy also stated that officers found a 45 caliber magazine under the covers in the bed Whitley mentioned being in around the time. 
And Arrington says he found this to be significant and that it contradicts her statement and quote, she has gunshot residue on her hands and part of the weapon that caused the death in this case was found under the covers in her bed. Narrative 50, I'm going to skip for now. I'll read that one last as it acts as a summary of findings. Narrative 51 is an interview with Matt Miller. You probably remember how he got involved, which all happened the night before, and what you know as gun night. Arrington says that Matt was adamant that Whitley did not shoot a gun that night and gave a detailed story to support this claim, which Arrington found significant because it disputes Whitley's claim as to why gunshot residue was found on her. Furthermore, Matt goes into detail about four different versions of what Whitley told him about Christian's death, which were also included in the text messages recovered from the cell phone. Arrington also stresses the significance in that police were searching for Christian's phone the night of his death and later found that Whitley lied about it and had it in her possession. He ends the narrative with this quote, Considering all the evidence so far in this case, not only do I think Whitley was present at the time of death, I think she is also responsible for the fatal discharge of the weapon. As a culpable listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. One thing I've learned working in true crime is that your best line of defense is vigilance and preparation, which is why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. I happen to live in a pretty nice neighborhood, but as you know, crime has a way of being anywhere at any time, even when you least expect it. When our car was broken into and items were stolen, I was so relieved to know that my home security system got the footage and it eventually led to us being reimbursed by the perpetrator once they were caught. Crime is just waiting to happen, so be prepared at all times and equip yourself with Simply Safe, the best home security system of 2024, according to US News and World Report. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash culpable. That's simplysafe.com slash culpable. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist June Parker on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I'm going to skip to Narrative 53. We'll do 52 next. Narrative 53 
is just an interview with Zach Tab, who was present at gun night. In it, he confirms Matt's story about that night. Now back to Narrative 52, which reports that Arrington has drafted affidavits and arrest warrants charging Whitley Goodman and Dylan Swearingen with manslaughter by culpable negligence, as well as tampering with physical evidence. However, he adds in regards to the arrest warrants, quote, there appears to be an issue with the statute of limitations, and therefore they will not be served. And lastly, I want to go back and cover narrative 50. I know this is a ton of information to take in, and that's why I want to end with this narrative, which again is a summary of Arrington's findings, his main takeaways, I guess you could say. Whereas the other narratives could be lengthy or wordy at times, in this one he lays out everything very succinctly. Here's how he starts the narrative. At this point in time, the following points should be considered. He then goes on to list nine of them. Let's run through them. Number one, at the time this death was called in, the deceased not only was in fact dead, but evidence and statements indicate the deceased had been dead much longer than the original 911 call would indicate. Number two, it should be considered factual that Whitley Goodman was present in this apartment from the time prior to this death to after the death was reported. Throughout this investigation, it is noted that the story given by Whitley Goodman has changed many times. A combination of changing statements and text messages sent and received, phone calls made and attempted to be made, make her suspect in this case. Number three, Goodman stated to Sergeant Legoy that the deceased had been drinking and doing drugs and was depressed because he just lost his job. This is contradicted by the toxicology report in the case file and is the reason the coroner listed depression on his report. Number four, there is clear motive in this case. It is documented that the deceased got off his job to come home due to Goodman's infidelity, and his intention was to put her out of the apartment, take his vehicle back, and cut off her money, putting Goodman in a desperate situation, whereas she was sending text messages trying to get Matt Miller to come get her. Number five, the time of death in this case is skewed at best, with there being evidence the death event occurred much earlier than reported. Number six, if the time of death is prior to Dylan Swearingen being at the credit union, trying to withdraw all of the deceased money from his account, then there is obvious issues. Whitley Goodman could have provided the same information. There is nothing to prove that Dylan had any verbal or written approval to be trying to withdraw the deceased money from the bank. Number seven, Whitley Goodman has gunshot residue on her hands. She is given false information about its origin. Number eight, at the time of the death scene investigation, in the bed Whitley Goodman stated she was in during this death event, there was a pistol magazine found in the bed loaded with 45 caliber ammunition consistent with weapon located at the death scene. Number nine, a death scene reconstruction indicates the death scene has been significantly altered. And there you have it. I'm not really sure what I expected to see when I first heard about these narratives, but it certainly wasn't that. Remember, these narratives were omitted from that presentation to the grand jury in 2017, and Arrington claims he was not allowed in the grand jury. That deserves explaining. Obviously, nothing should have been omitted, but these reports specifically, yeah, I think I understand the Andriacchio's frustration. Again, take what you want from these, but here's Ray's takeaway. It just, to me, further proved that the case file was skewed. 
and they made sure they kept out things that would have, you know, persuaded a grand jury to indict. Even things like that in his narratives where I think he's talking to um, the detective that arrived first on the scene and, you know, where he talks about the magazine being in the bed and things like, I mean, that, that was, you know, new information to us because in the pictures, the magazine is on the bedside table. And then just even another story that, you know, I think in one of them, Lagoy says that Whitley tells him one thing. And then, you know, of course, she tells a different story later on. And um, it was just so it was just so much in there. And, and it validated the EMT, you know, recollection and things that he had told us and things he had told y'all or, or Sheila or, you know, the different people he talked to. And I mean, it was just like, that's exactly what I mean, it just validates what we've been saying all along. What she means here, what she's been saying all along, is that the information presented to that jury back in 2017 was not presented fairly. Of course, only the people that were in that courtroom know exactly what was said, what was shown to them, etc. And thankfully, one juror has come forward to clarify. We'll get into that in a bit. But I can tell you whatever was presented to that jury, Arrington's reports were not a part of it. So to raise defense, yeah, it wasn't done fairly. I don't see how anybody can say that there should not be a special prosecutor and this not go back to a grand jury. Because it would be a totally different grand jury if the information was presented fairly. And you know, Cassie always said, if we have new evidence, we'll present it to a grand jury. And we have a lot of new evidence. And it may not be new evidence in that, you know, yes, they've had it the entire time but it's new evidence to a grand jury because it wasn't presented to them and it wasn't a part of the case file. Remember, while all this was happening, we were in the middle of a lawsuit. I remember thinking at the time, people need to know about this. Unless you're one of those people out there on social media obsessing over this case, you'd have no clue. Well, funny enough, just a short time later, the world would be informed all right. An aspiring towboat captain, a mysterious death. 48 hours, Saturday at 10, 9 central on CBS. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. In January of 2021, 48 Hours ran a special on Christian's case. Of course, they went into the Arrington reports and everything surrounding them. But what's surprising is that the reports didn't steal the show. In fact, they spent very little time talking about the actual contents of them. 
Instead, they wanted to get to the bottom of the same question on everyone's mind. Is it true that these reports were left out of the case file and subsequent trial in 2017? And they certainly got to the bottom of it. If you haven't watched it, I suggest you do. But in the meantime, I'll summarize. It starts how you'd expect. A brief take on Christian, who he was, a brief history on the case, which continues to unravel throughout the episode. Of course, Ray and Todd give their take on everything and are also featured throughout the show. Whitley and Dylan declined to interview, but their mothers interviewed on their behalf. There's not a lot to take from it. They didn't want to talk specifics on the case. Of course, their main point was what you'd expect, that they believe their kids are innocent. Also making an appearance was Dr. Jonathan Arden. Nothing has changed there. He stands by his determination of homicide in a stage scene. Sheila Wysocki also makes a brief appearance, and so on. None of that sounds earth-shattering, I know. But throughout the broadcast, there were certainly some big moments, ones that I never saw coming. First, I was a bit surprised to hear former chief of police, Benny DuBose, share his thoughts on the case. Ultimately, he believes Christian's death was an accident, but he admits that a lot of stuff didn't make sense to him. He first mentions that when the gun went to the crime lab, no prints were found on it, not even Christian's. He believes that the gun was clean. He also believes, in analyzing the blood spatter at the scene, that the bathroom had been cleaned. He then references the handling of the case, even exhibiting some frustration over the fact that all the officers were issued cameras, yet the photos at the scene were taken on a cell phone and were terrible as a result. Basically, he alludes to a poor handling of the case on behalf of the Meridian Police Department. And just after that, they pan over to DA Cassie Coleman, and she doubles down on Dubose's claim, saying, quote, the investigation lacked competence and thoroughness. And then, Captain Jay Arrington took center stage. He didn't say a lot in terms of actual words spoken, nor did he spend very much time speaking. He's short in his statements, a straight shooter, you could say. But man, did he say a lot with very little. His opening line, it's homicide. Of course, producer Peter Van Zant questions are you sure of that? Arrington's response, absolutely. Peter then asks if Christian's body was moved. Arrington replies, I have no doubt. Peter then goes into the arrest warrants for Whitley and Dillon, which Arrington drafted during his investigation. He asks, were those warrants ever served? No, sir, Arrington replies. Peter then recaps the history leading up to the 2017 grand jury and asks, were you allowed to present your investigative report at the grand jury? Arrington's response, I wasn't allowed to be at the grand jury. It's the only one I've ever had done that way. In all my years, it's the only one. He then goes back to Cassie, asking her the same question. Were Arrington's reports presented to the grand jury in 2017? Her response, yes. She explains that she's spoken with jurors and investigators who presented the case and quote, all the reports from the Meridian Police Department were presented. Well, then we get some clarity. In a big twist, 48 Hours interviews one of the original jurors. Peter holds up a copy of the report saying that they were written by Captain Jay Arrington. He asks, at the time, had you heard this man's name before? Her answer, no, sir. After sharing the contents of the reports, he then asks the juror, does that bother you? Is it in any way disturbing? She replies, yes, it's very disturbing, because it seems that he had a lot more information detailed in his report than what we were presented. Ultimately, she believes it should be represented to a grand jury. Now, the AG's office declined to interview, but Cassie had this to say. 
If that information was not presented, then yes, that is a situation that would open the door to allow the case to be represented to a grand jury. The producer closes the show with this line, the case goes on. But what does that mean? I asked Ray this, where do things go from here? You know, again, we're right here where a special prosecutor should be appointed and everybody is on record as saying, I mean, Cassie has said in her filing that there is new evidence and she feels that it, there needs to be a special prosecutor. The attorney general's office has said they agree there needs to be a special prosecutor. You know, the problem is, is that nobody wants to be the special prosecutor or nobody wants to actually step up and I guess assign somebody to do it that will do it. A special prosecutor is basically what the next step would be. There was some buildup to this though. This actually goes all the way back to November of 2019 when the Meridian City Council held a vote as to whether the DOJ should investigate Christian's case. If you remember, this was what the Andriacchios had hoped for. Ray's petition for the DOJ to get involved sits at over 120,000 signatures. And regardless of whether or not that played a part in the decision, the decision was made. Finally, they had a response to that plea. The council would end up voting four to one in favor of the DOJ's involvement. About a year would pass after this, with not much happening. Then, in November of the following year, 2020, Cassie is reelected as DA, therefore continuing her oversight on the case. Just two months later, January of 2021, is when CBS aired that 48 Hours episode on Christian's case and Ray started noticing a shift as a result of all this. That kind of put the spotlight back on something being done, and then, of course, they did, you know, have Arrington's narratives, and they did have the juror saying, you know, no, we weren't shown this. And so it really ramped up the pressure for the case to be presented to a grand jury, um, a new grand jury. And Cassie had met with us, Cynthia and I, twice, I think. We had laid out some concerns we had as far as the new evidence, and then she had given us kind of her take on some of that, and she agreed. She stated that she knew that I would never trust her office, and so she began talking about there needs to be a special prosecutor. So over the course of a couple of months, you know, there was some exchange of emails and in the meantime, we were talking to the attorney general's office also saying, you know, if she's not going to represent the case, then y'all need to represent, somebody needs to take this back to a grand jury. And that's when Cassie filed to be recused so that her office would not have to because of our relationship, our poor relationship. And also, you know, said there needs to be a special prosecutor appointed that the Andriacchios will have some confidence in. Hey, culpable listeners. I want to tell you about something that's personal to me, something we've been working on here at Resonate for quite some time. It's called Resound, a free-to-use, mobile-first AI editing software. We believe a creator should be free to focus on their message, rather than their mess-ups. So when it comes to editing your podcast, finding and removing every one of those pesky ums and ahs to make clean, listenable audio, save yourself time and money, and let Resound do the work for you. Resound is coming very soon. 
Request early access at resound.fm forward slash culpable so you can help us shape the future of podcasting. On March 12th, 2021, Cassie Coleman filed a notice of recusal and petition for appointment of a special prosecutor. She begins with a brief history on the case, going all the way back to when it happened, February 26, 2014. Mind you, it's not everything, but it's a pretty good breakdown of it. It also makes a solid defense as to why Cassie felt she should be recused. Here's how she breaks it down, in summary. February 26, 2014. Christian was found dead in the bathroom of his apartment with a gunshot wound to the head. Cause of death was initially listed as undetermined. March 28, 2014. The medical examiner's office issued a report changing the classification from undetermined to suicide. June of 2014. MBI began a follow-up investigation. They submitted their final report to former DA Bilbo Mitchell in December of 2014 affirming the manner of death as suicide. In August of 2015, per the family's request, MPD assigned the case to Detective Jerry Bratu to be reinvestigated. He concluded the only charges that could be brought forward against Whitley and Dillon were tampering with evidence, and later requested to be removed from the case. In January of 2017, Captain Jay Arrington was assigned the case. He concluded that the evidence constituted charges of culpable negligence manslaughter and tampering with evidence. Arrington drafted affidavits and warrants for the charges against Whitley and Dillon. The statute of limitations had expired on tampering with evidence. However, arrest warrants were signed for culpable negligence manslaughter, and the charges were brought forth on January 20th, 2017. The warrants were withdrawn by Arrington on January 23rd, 2017. No corresponding reports or affidavits were located in the file. However, two arrest warrants for murder were signed that same day. Arrington stated he never activated those warrants. February 22, 2017. Former DA Bilbo Mitchell recused himself from the case and requested the AG's office review it and present it to a grand jury. The AG's office presented the case to a grand jury in October of 2017, and the jury returned a no true bill. No charges on the basis of insufficient evidence. A year later, October of 2018, Bilbo Mitchell retired, and on November 2nd, Cassie Coleman was sworn in as DA. The Andriacchios requested the case be reviewed and represented to a grand jury under the basis that it was not properly presented by the AG's office to the 2017 grand jury. Cassie requested that new evidence would be required to reopen the case. The Andriacchios refused to meet with Cassie in regards to this. In August of 2020, Cassie learned of numerous reports authored by former MPD Detective Jay Arrington dated back to January of 2017 that were not presented to the grand jury. Cassie stated she does believe this discovery could justify bringing the case to a new grand jury. Also in August of 2020, the Andriacchios, along with attorney Cynthia Speechin, agreed to meet with Cassie. The Andriacchios claimed to have new evidence, but did not bring anything official to support the claim. The Mississippi Forensics Lab also advised there was additional ballistic testing that could be done and that there's DNA evidence that has been maintained, both of which could be tested and potentially bring forth new evidence. Cassie lists a host of conflicts between herself and the Andriacchios and gives a strong basis for recusal. Here's a lengthy quote from it. 
Although strong relationships with law enforcement and victims can be crucial to successful prosecutions, a prosecutor cannot align herself exclusively with crime victims. A prosecutor owes an allegiance to constituencies that are independent of the victim, i.e. the general public and the accused. Neither crime victims nor law enforcement officers are considered to be clients of the prosecutor. Prosecutors have a responsibility to protect the public from harm, protect the rights of crime victims, and protect the constitutional rights of the accused. Acknowledging that Mr. Andriacchio's family is not her client per se, District Attorney Cassie Coleman cannot cite a specific constitutional or ethical rule which creates a legal conflict of interest in this case. Notwithstanding the lack of a specific legal, ethical, or constitutional disqualifying basis, District Attorney Cassie Coleman has chosen to recuse herself from this case based on the rules of professional conduct, which mandate that all attorneys, including prosecutors, should avoid even the appearance of impropriety when handling criminal cases. The notice then goes into Cassie's recommendation that a special prosecutor be appointed and further states in summary that Cassie, quote, recognizes there's a strong public interest in this case and publicly affirms her position to the court that she believes the Andriacchios deserve to know all available answers regarding their questions surrounding Christian's death. She believes it is imperative that there is a thorough, unbiased review of all the evidence in this case by a prosecutor not associated with the district attorney's office. She then goes on to say, in conclusion, that the recent discovery of police reports not previously presented to the grand jury, as well as available testing which could be performed to potentially provide additional evidence in this case, require a prosecutor to review and examine the credibility and weight of any new reports to determine what, if any, charges should be presented to a new grand jury. The conflicts or even appearance thereof between prosecutorial entities who would normally handle these duties necessitate the appointment of a special prosecutor. Cassie Coleman respectfully requests that this court accept her recusal and issue an order recusing her from this matter and appointing a special prosecutor. Respectfully submitted on this, the 12th day of March, 2021. In response to this, Judge Charles Wright held a hearing on April 21, 2021. Of course, the judge recused Cassie, but when it came to the appointment of a special prosecutor, things got a little messier. So Judge Wright heard the case and, or whatever, had a hearing and we attended and he said that his first choice would be the county attorney or the county prosecutor, but the county prosecutor had just been deployed to Afghanistan. So, of course, he was out of the question. And, you know, of course, he agreed to recuse Cassie. And then he, so he said, I don't really see why the attorney general's office can't be the special prosecutor because they have all these different attorneys who work there and they can just appoint one attorney to be the special prosecutor and build a Chinese wall, some legal term that they all use, and basically wall themselves off from the office so that they're basically functioning independently. Well, the attorney general's office didn't want to have anything to do with Christian's case. And they said, well, we have a, a conflict of interest because one, Bilbo Mitchell works for us. Two, Ray's suing us which we're really not suing the attorney general's office. We're suing Marvin, who doesn't even work for the attorney general's office anymore. And then three, because 
one of the people, the deputy director or whoever at the attorney general's office was involved in the investigation of Arrington. And so they felt like that there was enough conflict of interest there for them not to have to be involved. And so the judge didn't agree. He went ahead and appointed them anyway. Then they filed, basically appealed, I guess you'd say, his ruling. And the Supreme Court said that he did not have the authority to force them to be a special prosecutor. So now it goes back to the, now it's kind of sitting in his lap again. And, you know, we don't know whether he's waiting for the county prosecutor to come back, which should be any time now, or if he's just going to let it sit there and do nothing. In other words, things are currently in limbo. All we know, per the Mississippi Supreme Court, is that a judge cannot order that a prosecutor be appointed. It has to happen voluntarily. That has not happened yet. So as far as where this is headed, technically nowhere at the moment. Though when I asked Ray what's next, she had an idea. If he doesn't appoint him, then I guess we'll, we'll go back to the attorney general's office and say, you know, y'all need to do something. Because ultimately, you know, they do bear responsibility. Since Cassie's recused, the only other agency that can do anything with it is going to be them. I mean, I think the judge, I mean, he was very clear that day in court that he felt like that's who should be appointed. So we're just kind of waiting, like I said. there He should be back in the next two months, one to two months. And so if the judge doesn't move forward after he returns, well, then, like I said, we're going to just start hitting the attorney general's office again with phone calls and emails and that type thing. Of course, for Ray, things don't end here. She is pushing on strong as ever. And she's optimistic a special prosecutor will be assigned the case. But for me, this is where I'm going to end things. At least for now. It feels like this is where I should give some big closing statement, but I gotta be honest, I've read through all this information many times, and now having read it one last time, I really don't know what to add at this point. Maybe Ray's optimism pans out, and this is something we can report on in the future with more updates. We'll wait and see. Until then, it's been a pleasure coming back and revisiting this case. Thank you all for listening. Culpable is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper. Executive producers are Jacob Bozarth, Mark Mennery, Dennis Cooper, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Additional production by Whitney Bozarth, Courtney Cooper, Meredith Stedman, and Mason Lindsay. Audio editing and sound design by Resonate Recordings. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme music and score is by Dirtpoor Robbins. Additional music for this episode 
by Lovers and Madmen. Cover art by Drew Bardana. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcast. Show notes as well as bonus content can be found on our website, culpablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening.